0: What is your favorite of the 12 days of Christmas? Mm, Piper's Piping. Piper's Piping is a good one. Um, I, I'm a fan of the geese laying. Sam? I'm, I like the turtle doves, Aww. which I believe there are two of, but I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, to make it even more complicated, I want to tell you today that there is a 13th day of Christmas. Oh, goodness. And that 13th day of Christmas is the day where you, as the listener of this podcast, go to patreon.com slash Lad or Ontariolad.ca <laughs> and donate to Ontario Lad for less than the price of a cup of coffee. This year, we have been able to expand our volunteer base. We have uh, been able to expand the pod to uh, new audiences, and it has made a real difference in the number of people listening to discussions about progressive policy and politics in Ontario. So if you like what you're hearing, head to patreon.com slash Lad or Ontariolad.ca today. Do there have to be 13 of something for it to 13th day of Christmas? I mean, the 13th Days of Christmas kind of sounds like a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Ontario Lab, podcast of politics, public policy, and current affairs hosted by recovering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alexi White.
1: And I'm Sam Andre.
0: And today we will be talking about the last few weeks of political news in Ontario as we head into the holidays. It has not been quiet. Uh, the teachers are on strike. The liberal leadership race is entering the debate phase. What will be one of the most heated portions of the race. The auditor general says we aren't looking like we're going to meet our climate change targets, to which I say I'm shocked shocked the Ford government's plan for climate change. They seem so sincere. <laughs> I know. I'm heartbroken. But we have a bit of housekeeping before we get into it. We have a really exciting next few episodes for you as well. Heading into the holidays, maybe you're going to be spending some time in the car, driving to relatives' places. Maybe you're going to be waiting for loved ones to come out of stores in the crowded malls. We'll put it on Ontario lad, because later this week, we have an interview with leadership contender Michael Coteau coming your way. Next week, we'll be sitting down with the one and only Pat Sarbara, to discuss her new book, Let Him Howl, and her thoughts on the liberal leadership race. If you don't know Pat, she's probably one of the most successful organizers in Ontario political history. She was the director of Kathleen Wynne's 2014 campaign. We will be asking her what she thinks of the leadership race right now, and you do not want to miss it. And so without further ado, let's get to the news and the flurry of activity this week. So Sam, The Education File continues to be front and center in the news Public high school teachers across Ontario held a one-day conference last week, or held a one-day... Ooh, a symposium. (laughs) (laughs) Public high school teachers held a one-day strike last week, and the latest PISA scores, and that is the OECD's program for international student assessment, basically a high-level look at how education systems are doing across the world, were released. Two very different but related questions. How are Ontario students doing compared to our national and international peers? And what's the prognosis for relations between the government and the unions as we head into the new year?
1: All right, let's start with the positive, the PISA results that the OECD puts out are used around the world uh, as sort of the most frequently used tool to have education systems, how they stack up against each other. It's it's a test of achievement of 15-year-olds in reading, math, and science, and it's done every three years. So the last uh, results were just released this week, though it's maybe important to note that the test was done in April 2018, right before the last provincial election. So Ontario has always performed very well on this at or near the top of the world. Uh, and this year's tests are uh, no exception. So, in reading, Ontario was second in the country behind Alberta and was only behind China and Singapore, so basically top three, four in the world. And maybe I'll note, we're gonna hear China at the top of every single test, and it's worth noting that there are accusations that that's not a fair reflection of China's achievement because they only do certain provinces within the country, and there's accusations about how newcomers get tested. But anyway, so China, asterisks on those scores. In uh, math, Ontario achievement was actually up slightly, uh, was also still second in the country behind Quebec, and ranked in the top 10 in the world. Uh, It was the highest English language jurisdiction, but behind China, Japan, Korea, Estonia, the Netherlands, Poland, and Switzerland, but still in the top 10, which is not something you would necessarily know from listening to Stephen Lecce talk about our math achievement. And finally, in science, uh, Ontario was again in the top 10 in the world, and third behind Quebec and Alberta. And maybe most importantly, I think, the impact of socioeconomic status on the results is very low in Ontario, 4.8%. Uh, compared to the Canadian average of 6.7% and well below the average for the OECD, which is 12%. So we both achieve very high and equally across socioeconomic status and, and school type while having the highest percentage of newcomers and immigrants in Canada. So lots to be proud of. And I think maybe worth noting a public opinion poll that was put out last week by the Ontario Public School Board Association had a really interesting question about how Ontarians think Ontario students do relative to their international peers, and only 12% believed that Ontario did better than the global average. 55% thought that Ontario students performed about average, and 24% thought they performed below average. So I think it's interesting that Ontario has had a world-class education system for some time, and yet only 12% of Ontarians believe that or, or are aware of that. So clearly, the message is not getting through. And therefore, the Ford government can sort of tap into these preconceived notions that Ontario students are doing poorly or averagely. And so I think, you know, all in all, it's a a good news story and uh, something for Ontarians to be proud of. But then on a much more negative note, um, the Ford government is doing everything in their power to tear down this world-class <laughs> system. Uh, and it continues to be uh, pretty depressing to watch. So they're clearly at an impasse with OSSTF, the bargaining table. It seems pretty clear now from all the comments and notes that have come out that the government intends to try to hold the line on a 1% salary increase, but is ready to cave even further on average high school class size to get there. And the OSSTF, I think, is being smart in not trying to play into this frame because I think they know at the end of the day, if they go on strike and they get sent back to work and they go to arbitration, they're going to get a status quo deal that will either give them one or 2% of salary anyway. And so why voluntarily agree to a worse uh, deal than they might get through arbitration? So I don't see how this ends any other way than a full strike. I might be wrong about that, but you know, I've gone through bargaining myself with these fair unions. And I just think both sides are now kind of stuck and I don't see the path to a voluntary deal. Yeah. If I, if I was a betting man, I would think this gets worse before it gets better.
0: I want to ask about the dynamics of the table, but before leaving the question of the PISA scores, I think it's really important to note that because this is an international test, when these scores come out, they generate headlines around the world. And I subscribed to the New York Times. And the headlines in the states that come out around this time are really different than the ones that we see in Ontario. I just pulled up the article that I was reading on the weekend last week, and it was, it just isn't working. PISA test scores cast doubt on US education efforts and talks that reading and math throughout the country have basically been stagnant since 2000 in a lot of places with huge socioeconomic imbalances dependent on where you go to school. I think It is a, I think, a testament to the folks in Ontario's education system who have worked over the past two decades to bring us to where we are today. And it is really troubling to me that that work doesn't seem to be recognized broadly by the province. And it seems like there's real work for a political party who wants to champion education ahead of it to Sort of fix this problem because not saying everything in education is perfect, there's lots to work on. You can't rest on your laurels, but there's a lot to be proud of. And the fact that that is not reflected in public sentiment when just south of the border we're seeing a real problem is notable to me. And I think it's something the political leaders should take stock of.
1: Yeah. Well, and I also think, like, I, I guess it's a reflection that good news never sells, but the OECD results from this week, like how they were not widely covered, there was like one Globe and Mail story. I don't think I saw it. On TV or, or radio, not to say that I watched all the TV and radio that existed that day, but I just mean you—you um, you know, Ontarians are. It's not surprising that this news is not reaching them.
0: I'm imagining a Darth Vader-like media <laughs> bubble that like comes up, and he's like, "I've absorbed all the pizza news."
2: But EQAO, when that comes out, those scores are always broadcast widely, right? I don't think it's a disinterest in the topic. I, I do think it, it suggests uh, just uh, an interest in covering the bad news over the good news for the most part i mean i saw some regional stories i think cbc manitoba covered the manitoba scores for example but it just isn't covered in the same way as uh, in ontario as as every time we get another eqao score saying uh, ontario students are doing poorly in math compared to where we want them to be and i guess that's because we hold ourselves to a higher standard sam
1: i have multiple thoughts about that and sorry if this is too nerding out but so yes eqao announces their achievement based on level Three, which is the equivalent of like a B grade, and the proportion of Ontario students that are meeting the B grade. PISA, I'm oversimplifying, but it's basically the equivalent of a C grade, is passing the PISA test. So that's what the headlines are. Of course, there's all the detail underneath that you can access. But I mean, even in Ontario, EQAO, grade nine academic achievement, where most students are enrolled, continues on an upward trend over the last five years. Does any Ontario person know that? Like, good news just doesn't ever get covered.
0: <laughs> uh, and so actually maybe picking up on that, let's talking a little bit more about labor, we see the Ford government trying to frame the labor negotiations right now as the teachers being greedy. They want wage increases, the province is in fiscal trouble, the teachers need to play ball, and the teachers are sort of making the case that this is about kids, this is about classrooms, this is about the quality of education that students receive. In that kind of air war that is happening right now that affects so much what is happening at the bargaining table, what do we think the government the teachers are are doing right now?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I think broadly people think teachers are very well paid, and I mean, they are. The average salary is um, around $90,000, but they deserve it, but that's just me. But I think it's always a tricky terrain for teachers in particular to, I think, engage The public with. I don't know this. I have no special inside information, but my guess is that the teachers' unions are ready to cave and accept 1%, but they want it to be the last thing they give at the table in exchange for the other pieces on um, the learning conditions. But... Maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they want to hold out for a cost of living increase. And in fairness, over the last few years, they've been under inflation for several years, thanks to the liberal government. So I think the government is probably happy to be having this debate in public and think that the public is on their side. But I have been kind of impressed at how that's not the only public dynamic. The media actually has been quite good about making sure that the class size and e-learning requirements continue to be kind of front and center in the discourse. And so it hasn't become, you know, greedy teachers. Like you're not hearing that discourse uh, nearly as frequently as I think you could have. There was an interesting clip, I don't know if people saw it on um, uh, CBC's Power and Politics where uh, a reporter asked Minister Lecce, um, you know, if teachers are only going to get 1%, but why did you give 20% uh, increase to the MPP rental housing allowance? And Lecce did this kind of really disingenuous thing where he said, Well, I haven't taken that uh, rental allowance. And, you know, it's divisive even among our party. And then it was funny, Sam Hammond, the elementary teachers union head, pointed out he's not eligible because he lives in Vaughan for the rental housing allowance. It's like it's a super disingenuous framing. But even, I guess I bring that up mostly to say, like, it's interesting that the framing is, uh, well, 2% is pretty reasonable. It's expensive to live in Ontario, I think, is like the phrasing she used, is pretty good, solid framing for the teachers in this kind of air war battle. And so, yeah, I, I think this is probably going about as well for the teachers as they would have thought. People in Ontario may not know this, but in British Columbia, uh,
2: where I am right now, there's uh, also a uh, ongoing discussion between the government and the teachers about their contract. Um, but it's a very different sense out here, uh, which is which is a bit weird because the teachers unions in British Columbia are considered probably the most militant across the country and have been for quite some time. But they're against an NDP government that has been uh, you know, traditionally quite supportive of them. Uh, after the NDP won the last election, uh, the teachers unions uh, helped support some some Very positive ads that kind of had the like it's morning in the BC education system kind of feel to them. I'm very positive about how they turned a corner with the new government, and so it's just interesting to see if that's going to continue. They've managed to keep the conflict out of the media for the most part. Uh, there was some sort of information picketing outside of the NDP uh, government's conference and uh, uh last week, but for the most part, um, everything's still contained at the bargaining table, so um, everyone in BC obviously is interested cuz BC's got a razor thin surplus right now and um, everybody's pretty sure that the NDP does not want to go into deficit in the future. So just so we have a little bit of comparative sense of what's going on it's this is always a difficult issue for for governments across the province even even a government that's sympathetic to the to the teachers um, but of course the BC government also is not trying to impose a 1% contract
0: and I, I think it's also a good, uh, another point in that comparison that really sticks out to me is how low the Ford government's level of trust from the public is on this issue. If this was a government that people really trusted valued education and they had a good record on it, like it might be a little bit different. The dynamics might be trickier for the teachers, but the, the government went into this with such a low level of trust and to the point where like the most circulated clip that I've seen about this is that kid calling Doug Ford a Timbit, <laughs> which Great. is like, how do you feel to be <laughs> Of school, I, I love that the reporter could not get the microphone away from that kid <laughs> fast
1: enough.
0: They just told us that there's going to be no school tomorrow because Doug Ford
2: is have you know all the teachers right? Doug Ford is envisioning in his mind he's probably thinking about timbits right now, and I'm probably telling him he is a timbit himself. you, <laughs> <laughs> <or> sir? <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: i love
0: that kid Me he's he he's a he's a toronto celebrity now and uh, a good summation of where we are in this in this labor discussion right now so maybe <laughs> moving, moving on, <laughs> on. Uh, moving on to ontario liberal party news um we've learned last week that party membership ballooned from about nine thousand people last year which is Crazy when you think about the size of Ontario and how few people were members of the Ontario Liberal Party last year to over 30,000 now, thanks to the impending leadership contest. Parties traditionally view leadership contests as great, both fundraising and party growth opportunities, because the candidates go out and they sell memberships to sign up people who ostensibly vote for them to be leaders. So the amount of memberships sold is always taken as a proxy for who's ahead and who's behind in this race. And they started an interesting analysis of how many memberships were sold by each candidate and found that. Stephen Del Duca, consistent with uh, expectations, is way ahead of the pack, having sold 14,173 memberships. Michael Cotto was a distant second at 8,500, and no other candidate exceeded 2,000 memberships. So I'm just really curious what we think these numbers mean for the race going forward, aside from the fact that potentially all of our previous <laughs> expectations might have been confirmed.
1: Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a very impressive showing by both Stephen Del Duca and Michael Cotto and I think in particular, Michael exceeded uh, expectations uh, as like clearly the second place, like not by, you know, a little bit. So I think, you know, the open question is how this maps to delegates. You know, you can have lots of... Members in a few ridings, um, so we'll see how evenly spaced out um, those are as the uh, delegate selection gets underway in February. You know, and there's also the question about how the ex officio votes, who don't get elected, will split by all the candidates. Um, so I think you know the question in everyone's mind is, can Stephen win on the first ballot? Because um, if he can't, it seems like the dynamics or that uh, many of the other camps will try to line up behind the second place. So it certainly seems within a doable path for him to do so. So if I was Michael's camp, I'd be feeling pretty good. Yeah, I agree. So right now we are
0: reading Pat Sarbaro's book to uh, in preparation for our interview next week. And um, I finished the part this week where she talks about running Lynn McLeod's leadership race back in the early 90s. And, or this sort of says to me is that one of the only ways for another candidate to pull ahead in this race is to have an exceptionally coordinated ground game with sort of shared rules between the other candidates, I mean anything can happen at a convention. Stephen Del Duca does not have half the eligible membership uh, votes in the party, so I mean there is still a chance. But to your point, Sam, it's going to require a really uh, intense amount of
2: coordination. That you know, do they have the ability to do? I, I, I uh, we will see. I would agree with all of that. I think the party would have been. Very worried about the number of memberships that it had last year at nine thousand. That's not great. I think adding twenty one thousand is okay, but not as good as um, as it could have been. Uh, and certainly, you know, with the party in rebuilding phase, you would think that there would be added excitement on people's behalf to try to come together and get rid of Doug Ford with him low in the polls. People would be looking to the Liberal Party, maybe a little bit more uh, interested in getting involved in this leadership contest. Um, but we're I think we're seeing numbers that are uh, still below uh, the last leadership.
1: And I think given the energy, the anti-Ford energy, you would hope that there was a better base building opportunity, but I don't want to like, it was still an impressive effort for a short runway, but um, yeah, yeah, if it had been longer, I think more, it could have had a larger impact.
0: Yeah. I don't want anyone to take this as you know, shitting on the organizers or the people who've been working hard to recruit people. I mean, that is hard work that has been happening in every campaign. And certainly I think the Delta Duca campaign has a lot to be proud of in recruiting that many people. But Alexi, you pointed out like, last time, we have 30,000 members now. Last time, there was about 44,000. There were less campaigns, less candidates, and more members were recruited by the process. The biggest loss, it, it points again back to me to this process issue that the party has that is advantaging folks who who are already involved, who know the dynamics of the race, who are easily accessible liberals. There are lots of folks out there. This this campaign is just getting its air war started. It is just getting to start major coverage in the news. If you're a person out there who maybe saw Michael Koto's transit announcement, or you're hearing Alvin talk about basic income, and you're like, that's an interesting idea. Or Kate talking about transit, you hear that on the radio or in the star, and you're like, okay, like, that's cool. How do I help that guy? You can't get in at this point. There are people in my life who, who aren't liberal, who aren't partisan involved, have had that happen to them, and they are shut out by this process. And I guess what is frustrating about it to me is It puts pressure on whoever that future leader is to fundraise more, to present even more of a broad appealing vision right now. To basically, we're in a position right now where we have six different candidates. With six different visions and ideas who can all get people in. And that's going to go to one person after this race. I just want to say, like, if you, you have to hope that person coming out has the ability to outdo what six people can do right now. And maybe that person is Steven Del Duca. Um, and his numbers certainly make the case that he has organizing ability. But I, I continue to be worried about how inevitable this process feels and how his victory feels aided by the rules of this process. So finally, in the news this week, Ontario's Auditor General Bonnie Lachick released her annual value for money audits. Uh, for those of you familiar with this annual tradition, each year the auditor and her team choose a subset of government programs and regulatory functions to examine in depth. They release this massive report on all aspects of government. It always causes a huge avalanche of bad headlines for the government, uh, saying it's always a date that you note because you don't know which of the stories is going to catch fire in the media I remember when we were in education, we knew that our ministry was being audited and sort of like, but we didn't know where we'd be in the pecking order of things being uh, of stuff that would achieve headlines. We were thankful when education was not at the top. But in this case, the Ford government is still pretty new. And so some of the findings are still critical of the previous liberal government. And so, Alexi, you have spent some time combing through the audits
2: and uh, curious for your thoughts on them. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it, it was interesting. The, the Auditor General did a focus this time on um, sort of safety and health, which is a bit of a different uh, perspective. But um, the major thing that broke through in the news was actually the fact that the Auditor General has taken on some of the responsibilities of the previous environmental commissioner since the Ford government got rid of them. And so the Auditor General did a, a separate report outside of the normal value for money audits on environmental policies, especially climate change here in Ontario and uh that that was quite critical of the government's climate change plan so um and we, we think we've mentioned that already off the top. Um, so that was the the thing that stuck out for most people. Uh, but there's so much in these reports to dig into and the media just, I mean, they move on quite quickly. And so, you know, usually for a couple of days, you'll have a few things um, trickling out. But especially now with the, it's very easy for the Ford government early in their mandate to simply say, well, that's because of the last government. It's less, I think it's less sexy for the media too, because they can't, can't as easily blame uh, or draw the connection to what's, to, to a political outcome for some of these um, concerns of the other general raises so it's just anyway it's interesting but it hasn't been as big a deal this year i would say just judging by the media attention to it um, as we've had in in some previous years but uh what i do have for you guys actually i thought we could play a little game based on the auditor general's report having combed through it um there's a lot of interesting stuff in there uh and i thought maybe we could do a little game i call finding or fiction so i will give you a sentence or two description and you tell me if it's a finding from the report from this year's report or a fiction that i just made up so i have some questions prepared for you and uh are you guys willing to play this game with me
0: i'm willing to play the game absolutely should yeah, we should be right. playing some music but <laughs> <laughs> i can i hear i'll i'll do i'll do a little theme song oh right now finding, finding or fiction, fiction.
2: That, that was weird. Wow, that, that was, was great. Weird. That was <laughs> Like an atonal approach. Um, so first question's a little easy. The Ministry of Environment's 160.9 megaton estimate of projected 2030 emissions incorrectly includes the emissions reductions impact from now canceled climate change programs. Is that a finding or a fiction?
1: I'm going to say finding. I'm going to say
0: finding because uh, it seems like the Ford government being bad at the environment is the only significant media takeaway from that. <laughs> Yeah, report. Right. so
2: you guys are correct ding 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 so specifically it included canceling uh canceled renewable energy projects and the canceled subsidies for low carbon vehicles uh and the auditor concluded our audit found that the emissions reduction estimates in the plan are not based on sound evidence or sufficient detail in its current early state the plan is not likely to achieve its proposed emission
1: reduction target womp, womp. all right moving on to question two Here's so your, we, we talked for 10 seconds about how their response was, well, this plan that is glossy and fully published is just a draft. And we're looking <laughs> forward to more feedback. Like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> yeah. In the fiscal year
2: ended March 31st, 2019, the government spent the lowest amount on advertising since our office began reviewing and approving government advertising in 2005. Is that a finding or a fiction? I am going to say it's a
0: fiction because it seems like they spent a lot of fucking money on those carbon tax ads and stickers. And if those sticker costs are in the advertising cost, I think it's it's a lot.
1: I'm going to go with finding mostly because it took them a very long time to get going on TV ads. Like they eventually did start them with concussions and stuff, but like for most as they got their feet, it felt really quiet. So I'm going to go with finding. The answer is finding, Sam, you got it.
2: So, they only what? spent $16.4 last year, down from $62 million, And it's exactly basically why Sam said the major reason was the election blackout. So, the liberal government had to stop government advertising for a period of time leading up to that, which was in the middle of that fiscal year or the beginning of that fiscal year. And then it took time for the new government to get up and running. So, uh, yeah, way down. But as, as you guys pointed out, there are uh, additional advertisements that rolled out heading into the federal election that would have been captured in the 1920 year, and so we'll see what uh, the auditor says uh, next year about advertising. And she did flag that there were three ad campaigns that did happen that would not have been approved under the old tougher rules, uh, where they judged uh, more harshly partisan-based advertising, um, and those rules were changed by the Liberal government a few years back. I would like, I would like have a point for that. <laughs> Uh, okay, number three. Ontario's grass-fed beef industry has received about $500 million in government funding over the past five years but remains lacking in public transparency and accountability. Only one of 15 industry res- recipients posts its financial statements on its website and there's no public reporting of key performance indicators including the number of people currently working in the industry. I'm going to say f- fiction.
0: Yeah, me too. And I think it's fiction because if you go on to StatsCan's website on their agriculture section, um, the amount of like grain by grain information <laughs> of wheat they have is astronomical. You know, they can't tell us a lot of things about education, but they can tell us, you know, how many stocks of wheat are in Canada. So I'm going to say that we have a lot of infor- we have the information we need on key performance indicators, but I'm not 100% sure because, you know, like is the industry publishing all of its financials? I don't know.
2: Wow. Yeah, that is awesome. That's a very good reason stats can came through for you guys. That one was a fiction. Um, that most of that statement was true, but it was actually reflection of the racing, the horse racing industry, not the grass fed beef industry. So Mm -hmm. clearly agricultural statistics are better than uh, horse racing statistics, but we have given out almost or half a billion dollars to the horse racing industry. Uh, and we have, um, no key performance indicators and, uh, really no idea. How many people are working in the industry, or, um, or I mean, at least publicly? Any sense of how that industry is doing as a result of us um, pouring so much money into it in just the last five
1: years? The multi-party consensus, though, that this remains an important public policy objective, is something to behold. I mean, can't we just like don't they broadcast horse racing? Can't we
0: just
2: count the horses going around? And if there are more horses, <laughs> I'm pretty sure when they say we don't know how I many employees are working in the industry, they don't mean the horses, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I i did full employee rights for the horses. The horses should unionize. Oh, all right. Next question: Between 2014-15 and 2018-19, wait times for all addictions treatment programs increased. For example, the average wait time for residential treatment programs increased from 43 days to 50 days. Service providers informed us that they were aware of their clients dropping off wait lists for treatment programs because they were hospitalized, incarcerated, attempted suicide, or even died while waiting for treatment.
1: That's a safe, true finding.
2: Yeah, that seems awful and true. Yeah, I probably wouldn't make that one up. That's just terrible. So <laughs> We're so good at this game. Good work, guys. Yeah, uh, that one is true and very sobering and uh, and sad, given that we're still facing some serious uh, opioid uh, epidemic in, in uh, Ontario and across the country. Um,
0: so, And that wouldn't even capture, Alexi, if I'm correct on the timing, the full impact of the closing of several like op oh, like uh safe injection site opioid like addiction centers like that sector has been really hard hit in a particularly cruel way and like we this years numbers would not capture the full impact yeah. of that if i'm if i'm understanding time that's right that. this would only go up to the beginning of 2019 basically so um uh, yeah. yeah and they cut a lot of shit going into this fiscal year like right before so like that's not going to get better i don't think
2: yeah I mean, the auditor the does say that um, there's, you know, there's been significant investment in the industry. It's just that it's not keeping up, like so many other things. Uh, you know, housing programs are exactly the same way, right, as we talked about in our previous episode. All right, uh, only a few more. Uh, I believe Sam is in the lead by one. Significant progress has been made since our last review. However, the government still needs to significantly accelerate its IT compliance effort in a number of key areas. Closer attention and monitoring are required to ensure the necessary resources are devoted to mission-critical and business-critical projects. Is that a finding or a fiction? That's a very dry I'm one. I'm going to say finding. I'm going to try, because I, I, I have no clue, I'm going to say fiction and see if this is the spoiler
0: that puts me in the tie with Sam.
2: Chris, you were tied with Sam. Congratulations. That was a fiction. Uh, I took that from the 20 years ago Auditor General's report in 1999 about the lack of compliance heading into the Y2K <laughs> problem. So... As you can see, uh, the problems with our IT systems in Ontario continue uh, and sound exactly the same as they did in 1999. <laughs> Interesting,
0: <laughs> That's amazing.
2: Okay. Uh, two more. I'm going for the gold. Tie game. Here we go. The ministry does not analyze r- reasons for variations in daily cost per inmate to determine where potential savings may be achieved. In 1819, the daily operating cost per inmate in the province was $302 compared to 166 at the time of our last audit. We found the daily cost per inmate in 1819 varied widely across the province from a high of 589 at Fort Francis Jail to a low of 186 at Kenora Jail.
0: That seems like a really auditor general way of looking at things. Like, let's just divide the fucking total pot of money by the people in the system and not have any more nuance at all. So I'm going to go with true.
1: Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Yeah, you're right. You're, that was true. No, she did the same thing uh, when we were there uh, about school cost per student or or the education cost per student across school boards and, you know, was alarmed that the French system and the, you know, rural and northern boards were spending much more. And we we pointed out, well, of course they are because the classes are smaller because there are fewer people that didn't seem to um, (laughs) compute.
2: Yeah, it's the, the context that I find most frustrating about Auditor General's reports, as, as we know from being in government. I mean, it's, it's easy to read these and go and be shocked by these numbers. But there's a story deep behind each of these, and the civil service will, will have told that story to the auditors. They just don't always put it in the report, which I find uh, quite frustrating. Okay, last one. Tie game. Here we go, guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one's near and dear to my heart. We found ODSP overpayments to two deceased individuals of 140000 and 104000 respectively where both the individuals had passed away more than 10 years ago. We also found that the Ministry of Children, Community, and Social Services had not assessed the ongoing eligibility of both of these recipients in the last five years. Finding or
0: fixing. So I just want to say that (laughs) if we want to determine a winner, Sam and I can't choose the same thing here. This is true.
1: Uh, You you, you say what you want, and I'll go the opposite.
0: (laughs) I think that this sounds fuck i don't know this one
1: <laughs> you're really stressed <laughs> um i think, I think it's a false i think it is fiction
0: i think it sounds true because it is the kind of like case example that you can use to cast doubt over the viability of a system <laughs>
2: what is that what the auditor general is to do chris
1: <laughs> alexi
2: what is it oh sorry um the answer is true the answer is true shit
1: hey, hey chris pulls
2: So thanks for playing my game, guys. That was great. Until next year. Finding or fiction. (laughs) That's That's
0: That's the song. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was written mostly by Alexi. And I want to thank him for writing this and for that amazing game, which I won. And I want to say much like a candidate in the United States to a super PAC, There's no relationship between my opinion that this was a great game and the fact that I won, for the record. Ontario Loud is hosted by Sam Andrey, Alexi White, and myself, Chris Martin. Philip Askew is our recording engineer, and Aisha Anwar and Herman Mundy do our comms and our research. Ontario Ladder is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit and many nations. We honor and respect the treaties that are still alive today and recognize the Indigenous people across Canada must still fight for their rights in this colonial society. We need to do everything we can to change that. It is so important. As mentioned off the top, we will be doing one more episode with Pat Sarbara next week and then recording a holiday wrap-up. So check back next week for some amazing insights into Ontario politics. See you then.